Declare in God's word to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement whom I have put away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. Wherefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, at my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stinketh because there is no water and dieth for thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and I make sackcloth their covering. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters, and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. And stay upon his God. Behold, all ye that kindle a fire, that compass yourselves about with sparks, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks that ye have kindled, this shall ye have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. So far we read in God's word this morning. In light of that reading, we consider the instruction of Lord's Day 24 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 62 asks the question, But why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Answer, Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law, and also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness.
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 24 is a transitional Lord's Day in the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism has been teaching us the contents of our faith by working through the articles of the Apostles' Creed. We have seen God in action as our Creator, as our Redeemer, and as our Sanctifier. We then came to the conclusion that believing all of this is profitable for us guilty sinners in the previous Lord's Day. By faith, we embrace the righteousness of God as our righteousness and as the answer to a guilty conscience. The Catechism will now take a turn in the direction of Christian practice. Now, practice does not only mean good works. Practice is the whole life of a Christian who is regenerated and is living out of the Spirit. Practice includes using the means of grace, which is the topic of the next Lord's Day, Lord's Day 25, and several after that as well. And practice will eventually lead us to the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism, which deals with the life of thankfulness. Lord's Day 24, therefore, sits right in the middle of the faith and the practice of the Christian. And that's because the purpose of Lord's Day 24 is to set boundaries on our understanding of Christian practice. How do we understand our Christian activity in a way that does not undermine our Christian faith? Well, we need to understand what good works are not for, which is to merit with God. Lord's Day 24 does also connect our, our faith and practice in a positive way. We do not believe our doctrine makes men careless and profane. We believe that our doctrine accords with godliness. However, the emphasis of Lord's Day 24 is definitely on what good works are not for. And that's because a big part of the battle of the Reformation was exactly on this point. Are we righteous by faith alone? That was the teaching of Luther. And that was the teaching of the other Reformers. And they had that word alone in all caps, underlined, and bold. Are we righteous by faith alone? Or are we righteous by faith so long as your practice as a Christian is also up to snuff? That was the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church with its system of priests and sacraments and works of penitence. Isaiah 50 is helpful in connection with the instruction of Lord's Day 24 because of the illustration it uses at the end of the chapter to show the peril that comes to those who trust in their obedience or in their practice. Isaiah speaks of the great lengths to which Jesus went in order to accomplish the redemption of his people. He gave his back to the smiters and his face to shame and spitting. Yet God justified him in his resurrection. Faith means always to walk in the light of his finished work. And yet there is the temptation always to kindle our own fire and to compass ourselves about with the sparks that we have kindled. And the only end of that path, as Isaiah points out, is to lie down in sorrow and in darkness. So I call our attention to Lord's Day 34 in light of Isaiah 50. And the theme for the sermon this morning is the sparks you have kindled. 
First, we will see the folly of walking in the light of those sparks. Secondly, we will see what the true light for us is in the darkness. And then finally, we will conclude by noting that there is a reward for God's people that is worth seeking after. The sparks you have kindled. First, the folly of walking in their light. Second, the true light in the darkness. Finally, the reward worth seeking. When Isaiah speaks of the sparks you have kindled, this is a poetic way of describing our works. Let me be more specific about that. The sparks that you have kindled is not talking about the truly good works that a Christian does out of the right motive of thankfulness to God. The good works a Christian does in thankfulness always proceed out of a true faith in Christ. When we do good works, that means we are not trying to live by those good works or to see by those good works. We do good works exactly because we are not trying to live by those good works or to see by those good works. As we behold Christ our righteousness and see Him, we are set free to do good works in the light that He casts over our lives. The sparks you have kindled rather is talking about the works that a man might do attempting to be righteous with God by those works. Think about the purpose of a fire at night if you are on a long hike through the wilderness. You need this fire to keep you warm and to cook your food and to illumine your surroundings. You are, in a real sense, depending on that fire for survival. But what if all you have are a few sparks that float around in the air before flickering out? While those sparks can't keep you warm in the cold night, those sparks can't cook your meal, those sparks won't enable you to see if there are any dangers lurking in the darkness. And yet this is what men are trying to do to gain the warmth and the joy of eternal life. They kindle sparks. They do works and they offer those works to God as the reason whereby he ought to accept them. This is what will give me the warmth of everlasting life. This is what will feed me with the bread of heaven. This is what will illuminate the darkness for me and show me the true path for my life. When I do good works and when I offer those good works up to God as my righteousness. Now this way of looking at life and this way of looking at one's relationship to God is more common than we might realize. We can start a running list of those out there who teach something like this. This is basic to all pagan religions, first of all. If you want the gods to approve of you and to bless you, then you better get to work. You better bring sacrifices and they better be the right sacrifices accompanied by the right rituals to the right gods or you're going to have problems. That's also the Islamic religion. Follow these five pillars. Submit your whole life to Allah and follow the teachings of His prophet and you can be righteous and accepted and have hope for heaven. This is also basic to Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. 
Repentance for the Roman Catholic Church means doing works of penitence in obedience to the sacerdotal system. So long as you are faithful in doing the works of penitence along with your believing in Jesus, so long as you do the things that the priest tells you to do in order to reconcile yourself with God, so long as you go faithfully to the altar, you can be sure that God accepts you and that you are on the path to heaven. Practice, at least in part, belongs to your righteousness with God. It is why God accepts you. But what we must realize is not only that these religions and doctrines go along this way, but we must realize why these religions and doctrines go along this way. And the reason they go that way is because that's how the sinful human heart is wired. So it's not just something out there, it's something in here. This is the basic temptation that Adam fell for in the Garden of Eden. Don't trust in God alone to be happy. That's what the devil said to Eve. Don't trust in God alone to be happy. Trust in yourself. At least in part, trust in yourself. Chart your own course. Be your own God. Do your own works. Light your own fire. And that's the mentality that is most natural to us. When we commit a sin, what's our most natural and reflexive instinct? We try to fix it. Maybe we try to fix it by denying it. I didn't commit a sin. There's no problem here. Or maybe we try to fix it by covering it up, hoping that it will just go away or pretending that it's not really there. Or maybe we try to fix it by doing something good to make up for the bad thing. Sure, that was a bad thing, but look at all of the good things I've done over here. Look at all of the, the love that I've showed to my neighbor. Look at all the times that I've gone to God's house. Look at all the prayers that I've prayed. Surely I'm righteous for the sake of those good things that I have done. We find ourselves out in the cold in our sin and we think that we have to start our own fire in order to get warm. But that very instinct of ours reveals that we have no idea the enormity of what it means to sin against God. That instinct that we have to light our own fire, to kindle our own sparks, and to stay warm in those sparks indicates that we have no idea what an utterly frigid, cold winter of judgment is making its way toward our little camp in the darkness on account of our sin. We think a few sparks will be able to keep us warm. We think a few sparks will be able to light us up. And give us salvation. That's complete and utter folly. The folly of walking in the light of the sparks we have kindled is seen from what the Lord's Day points out for us. First of all, according to question and answer 62, the only way for our works to be our righteousness is if our works 
are perfect, absolutely perfect. Question 62, why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And sometimes we imagine we know what perfect means. Well, perfect means that all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. Perfect means that I'm in church every Sunday. Perfect means that I never miss my devotions at home. Perfect means I always have a smile on my face. Perfect means I'm always ready to lend a helping hand. Perfect means that I walk basically, outwardly, in a good Christian life. I'm a good person. All right. But the rich young ruler thought he knew what perfect meant when he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, you know the commandments. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. Honor your father and mother. You know what the law says. And what is the response of the rich young ruler? It's the response that comes out of all of us by nature if we think we're a pretty good person. All these things have I kept from my youth up. What do I lack? Matthew 19, 20. I've done all those things. I've kept the law. I've done good works. Surely I'm righteous then. One wonders what kind of look Jesus gave to that rich young ruler after he said, after he said those words. Oh, you poor, sweet, naive soul. If you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give everything you own away to the poor. And then, if that's not difficult enough, follow me. Follow me. Where's Jesus going? Follow me as I give my back to the smiters. Follow me as I offer my beard to those who pluck out the hair. Follow me as I go through hell itself. Follow me as I perfectly keep all of God's commandments and break none of them. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then you will be perfect. Jesus wasn't being condescending when he answered that way. His reply to that rich young man was in love. It says that in the book of Mark. He loved that young man. But the fact is, what you need is fire. What you need is perfect righteousness. And all you have in yourself are sparks. The second thing that explains why the sparks we have kindled are not enough for us to be righteous with God is that even the good works that we have as Christians are imperfect, all of them, and defiled with sin. Not only is it that God requires perfect righteousness, but also, the second part of answer 62, but also that our best works, even our best works, think of the, the best thing you've ever done, in this life, are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Now, to understand the point that's being made here, we have to step back and remember what good works are. 
according to the Reformed faith. What are good works? Well, by definition, good works are not works that we do in an attempt to be righteous with God. Anything that we do in an attempt to be righteous with God is not of faith and by definition is not a good work. By definition, good works are works that we do out of faith. It is out of the freedom of the gospel of free grace. So think about those good works that the Christian does out of faith. And we do those good works. Christians do good works. But now the catechism is saying, what if we took those truly good works that the Christian does and put them under the microscope and subjected them to extreme scrutiny? What if we acted like those good works that a Christian does out of faith were actually done for the sake of his righteousness with God? Would even those best works stand up to scrutiny? And the answer, even in that case, is emphatically no. Even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. They are real. We do them by the power of the Spirit of Christ in us. They are rightly called good works, but they are not the fire that we need to stay warm and to survive in the darkness. At best, they are sparks that float out of the flames of God's mercy, which mercy is the true source of our light and warmth. In fact, the only thing that even our good works have the power to achieve for us in themselves is damnation. Damnation. That's not too strong. And that's not an exaggeration. Even our good works, our best works, in themselves, if presented before God as our righteousness, as our basis for acceptance, would send us straight to hell in God's wrath. That's why God says what He says at the end of this chapter, Isaiah 50. If you are determined to walk in the light of your own fire and to compass yourself about with your sparks, go ahead, Israel, and see where that gets you. This shall you have of mine hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. That is, you will be left out in the cold of a Siberian blizzard with nothing but a few sparks to light you and to keep you warm. Sparks that will be out in a second when the cold hits. Practically speaking, what does this tell us about the Christian life? Is the practical implication of what the Lord's Day is teaching us here, particularly in question and answer 62, this don't do good works? Does it mean don't attach any significance to good works? Does it mean don't talk about good works because even our best works are defiled? Does it mean don't talk about good works in any positive way because if you do that, that might sound like you're boasting? No. It doesn't mean any of those things. What it means is we have to understand and we have to be very clear about what good works are not for. And they are not for righteousness with God, either in part, in cooperation with faith, or as the whole. Good works are not for meriting with God. 
twisting his arm so that he has to give us something. Twisting his arm so that he has to accept us because look at the good things that we did. Good works are not for attaining deeper or better fellowship with God. Good works are not for keeping us warm in the cold of night. Good works are not for cooking our heavenly bread and strengthening us. Good works are not for illuminating the darkness of the world in which we live. We need another source of light and warmth for all of those things. As for what good works are for, stay tuned. The rest of the Heidelberg Catechism is intended to shape our understanding of the Christian and the Reformed way of life, the Christian and the Reformed practice, the Christian and the Reformed life of worship and good works. Good works have significance. Good works have meaning and purpose and an important place in our lives. And that whole significance and purpose and important place is shaped along the lines of thankfulness and love within the covenant. But good works are not to merit with God. If the sparks we kindle then are not to be our light in the darkness, where do we find that light? And question and answer 63 points us in the right direction, which is when it brings up the concept of grace. Question 63, what do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. Grace is spoken of many ways in the Bible. What is grace? Well, the first thing that we have to know about grace is that grace is God's attitude. It is God's attitude specifically of favor. This is the biggest reason why we have a problem in the Protestant Reformed churches with the doctrine of common grace. If grace is common to all men, what that's saying is God has a favorable attitude also to those whom he ends up damning to hell. And that's incongruous. But that, and that's not what the Bible teaches either. God's attitude toward the wicked in Noah's day, for example, was not an attitude of favor. It was an attitude of destruction. His will for the wicked world all around Noah was that they would be swept away in the waters of the flood and destroyed. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, when he looked up to God, found that God's attitude toward Noah was an attitude of favor. It was an attitude of grace. It was an attitude that had good intentions for Noah. That's Genesis 6, verse 8, by the way. And there was nothing common about the grace that God showed to Noah. It was particular. It was individual. It was specific to him, having its source in God's sovereign election. Grace is God's attitude of favor, but then as God's attitude of favor, it becomes God's power to save the one who is the object of his grace. God's attitude of favor toward someone does not stand still. 
If God has an attitude of favor toward a man who is wretched and miserable in his sin, he reaches out to that wretched and miserable sinner to save that wretched and miserable sinner. By grace, the hand of God is not shortened, as God says in verse 2 of the chapter we read, but is strong to redeem and powerful to deliver. By grace, Paul says, we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the work of God. That's Ephesians 2. By grace, we are saved. Grace is a power that God reaches out and saves the wretched and miserable sinner whom he loves. Grace, therefore, specifically is the, is the power to save those who are unable to save themselves. Grace, by the nature of the case, is freely given. If grace is not freely given, it is no more grace, which is why Paul says in Romans 11, verse 6, if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. And if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Work is work and grace is grace. And if salvation is to be by grace, it cannot be by works. Grace is the power of God whereby he saves those who cannot save themselves. But at bottom, grace goes deeper than all of these things. Grace is God's attitude of favor toward his people, and it is God's power to save his people, and that is because grace is who and what God himself is. Grace is one of God's attributes. Grace is what makes God Jehovah, the covenant God of the Bible. God is gracious as opposed to all of the idol gods that men create for themselves. The true God is gracious. The true God is beautiful, wonderful, and in his beauty he has the power to make beautiful those who in themselves are ugly and wretched and miserable And that's really what it comes down to. The true light in the darkness is grace because the true light in the darkness is God Himself. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, Isaiah asks, that obeyeth the voice of His servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? God is calling out to His people, Are you walking in darkness? Do you lack light? Do you lack warmth? Do you feel the miserable wretchedness of your sin? Then let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Let God be your light in the darkness, in other words. Let God and his grace in Jesus Christ be the fire that keeps you warm and illumines your surroundings and saves you. And now we have to look at the rest of the chapter and consider what it means for God to show us this grace. Grace is freely given to us. Grace is the opposite of merit. Grace is what God gives to us not because we worked it, not because we achieved it, but it is grace but that doesn't mean grace is cheap. That doesn't mean grace isn't costly. Grace is not cheap. 
On the contrary, grace is very costly indeed on God's part. Look. Look at what it cost him. Verse 6. I gave my back the smiters, the whips, the Roman scourges, with their barbed ends that ripped open the back of the Lord. I gave my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair, which besides being painful was shameful. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And in all of this, I was not rebellious, neither turned I away. He submitted to the mockery. He submitted to the shaming. He submitted to the treachery of Pilate. He submitted to the Roman soldiers who abused him, who nailed his hands and feet to the cross. He could have stopped it if he wanted to. He could have called ten legions of angels down from heaven to strike them all with blindness. He could have called fire down from heaven in judgment to destroy them like Elijah had done. He could have come down from the cross in answer to their taunts to show them who he was. But he didn't. He stayed there. And he did that because he's gracious. Not gracious to all men, you understand but gracious to you who believe in Him. Gracious to you and me who belong to His elect people whom He loves with an eternal love. There is your light, beloved. There is your fire to keep you warm through the long, cold night of this earthly life. There's your righteousness. There's your fountain of happiness and joy. It's all to be found in Jesus Christ who graciously earns you a place with His Father in heaven and then kindles in your heart a lively faith by His Spirit so that even as you walk through this cold Siberian wilderness called this world under the curse and under the fall, you have warmth that goes with you everywhere by true and living faith. That grace then becomes the power of the Christian life and practice. That's what question and answer 64 is getting at. It is impossible. It is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. It is impossible To say the same thing in a positive way, it is inevitable that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith will bring forth fruits of thankfulness. It is impossible that they won't. It is inevitable that they will. Why? Is it because faith is like an assembly line that automatically pieces together good works and plunks them out? Is it because... The Holy Spirit writes the code language of obedience and embeds that in our brains so that, like robots, we produce good works? No. Good works are conscious. Good works are intentional. Good works are that which proceed out of the will of the believer, which has been illumined by a true faith. It's what a Christian wants to do. It's what a Christian chooses to do. 
and actually does. And inevitably, he will. It's impossible that he won't for two reasons. First of all, because he's regenerated by the Spirit. And being regenerated, he is spiritually alive in Christ. He has a heart that has been powerfully opened by the Spirit who is in him and who has infused new qualities into his will as the canons teach and has made him a new creature, which is a work of God that is of the same amazing power as when a dead body is raised from the dead or a new baby is conceived and born. The second reason it is inevitable that a Christian will walk in good works and impossible that he won't is because as a new creature in Christ, the grace of God is beautiful to him. The grace of God is wonderful to him. It's more beautiful. It's more wonderful to him. It's more precious to him than anything else in the world. And when you're stirred by something so beautiful, beloved, you can't help but respond to it. You must respond to it. And that's how the gospel goes to work on us in our hearts, in our minds, in our soul, in our strength. And because of that influence of the beauty of grace, as God shows His grace to us and writes it into our consciousness, we really inevitably, by the grace of God, live in all good works. We do. So Christianity has no room for a careless and profane life. There are always two ditches. There was a schismatic group that left the Protestant Reformed churches not that long ago that wanted to deny that there are two ditches. There's only one ditch, they wanted to say and still say. And if you talk about the works we do in a positive way, You're starting to fall into that ditch if you haven't already fallen into it. The ditch of legalism. The ditch of works righteousness. We don't do good works. Only God does good works. We don't need to recognize our sin in repentance before experiencing the relief of forgiveness because repentance is a good work. And we don't do good works. Only God does good works in us. And we can see the fruits of this kind of mentality that are working themselves out, sadly, in that group. But again, it's easy to point the finger out there. But what we are seeing going on over there is only an extreme representation of what often goes on right in here, isn't it? We think the same way oh too often, don't we, beloved? Well, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven, therefore it doesn't matter if I repent of my sins or how I repent from my sins. I'm forgiven, therefore it doesn't matter how I live my life. God doesn't mind if I cheat a little in my Christian life. After all, God is gracious. Really? Well, keep in mind, Somebody has to pay the bill for all of your cheating. And it's the bill of everlasting suffering. It's the bill of damnation to hell. You think God doesn't mind our cheating? 
You think God winks when our carelessness and profanity means that His Son must suffer the damnation of hell for us? Think again. Beloved, if we really meditate on the meaning of grace and what it costs, we won't think that way. We won't even begin to think that way. We wouldn't dare think that way. Our thoughts, rather, will be renewed and transformed so that we think God's thoughts after Him. And when you live the Christian life in that light, you can be sure of a reward. A reward that's worth seeking. There is a reward. And it is a reward of the good works that you do as a Christian. There's a crown of victory that will be placed on your head at the end of the long and difficult race that you run as a Christian. There is a commendation that you will hear as you pass through the gates into everlasting life. It will sound something like this. Well done. Well done, you good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. As Jesus says in Matthew 25, 23, there is a reward, and it is a reward of your good works as a Christian. The Lord's Day never denies this. The Lord's Day denies that our good works merit And it denies that merit is the reason for the reward. But it does not deny that God will reward our good works. He will reward them. And He does reward them. He rewards them in this life. And He will reward them in a future life. It's worth it, therefore. It's worth it to endure trials. It's worth it to endure tribulations in the Christian life. It's worth it to give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in Jesus' name. It's worth it to confess Jesus Christ. It's worth it to gather with God's people on the Lord's day. It's worth it to sing praises with God in worship all your life long. It's worth it. It's worth it even though the world will never reward you for any of these things. It's worth it even though the world will never commend you for any of these things. It's worth it even though you may be rejected precisely because you do these good works. It's worth it even though you may be mocked, even though you may be put to shame, even though you may be put in prison. It's worth it even if you are killed for it. It is worth it though. There will be a reward You will be rewarded for your good works. But this reward is not of merit, it is of grace. And here's an illustration to help us see the difference. It's one thing when a child colors a picture for his dad and asks his dad to hang it in his office His dad is going to do that, isn't he? And he's even going to say, my boy, 
You did a good job. I really like these colors. I'm going to take this picture and I'm going to hang it in a prominent place. And I'm going to think of you every time I look at it. Thank you. That's one thing. It's another thing if this dad would then take that drawing to the director of the art museum downtown and then would say, you need to hang this picture that my son drew in a prominent place and you need to declare it to be a beautiful work of art. And not only do you need to hang this in a prominent place in your museum and declare it to be a beautiful work of art, but you need to pay me for this wonderful gift that I'm giving you of art because it merits payment. It merits recognition. Look at how good this picture is. Well, if the dad was even able to get an appointment, you can imagine how the meeting would go if he made such a suggestion to the, the, the curator of an art museum. The director would take a look at that little picture that a child drew and he'd crumple it in a ball and he'd throw it in the trash. <laughs> it's not good enough. It's not perfect. It's not a work of art to be hanging in an art museum. But understand, that's not the purpose of that little boy's drawing, is it? He's not trying to be a professional artist and to get his work professionally evaluated. All he's doing is saying to his dad, I love you. I love you and it matters to me that you approve of me. It matters to me that you approve of what I do. I want to be like you, Dad. And beloved, it's really that simple. If you understand grace, you don't want a reward based on merit. It's, it's nowhere in your mind the very thought of such a thing is repulsive to you. But you do want a reward. Of course you do. Of course, after enduring the long, cold night of your Christian life by the fireside of God's grace, you want to enter ever more fully, ever more deeply into the warmth and light of that grace. And that's all that the Lord's Day is talking about. Further up and further into the warmth and light of God's covenantal embrace. From glory to glory, we behold the image of Christ in His Word and we are transformed into that same image and God rewards us with more grace. But it all comes out of the fire of God Himself, not from the sparks that you kindled. Remember that. Remember that and you know the Gospel. Not only do you know it, but you will live it. It's impossible that you won't. But that's the power of grace in God's children. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for what the Lord's Day teaches us here and how it safeguards us both from the error of legalism and self-righteousness and works righteousness and from the error of antinomianism and carelessness and living a profane life. We pray, O oh Father, guard us from both errors and let the light and the warmth of the fire of thy grace fuel us and empower us and lead us in a new and Christian life, a life of confidence, a life of joy, as we look up unto thee and seek thy approval and thy, thy love. 
And we pray, O Father, do reward us as Thou hast promised and show us that reward so that when we find that life is a slog and when we find that there are great obstacles and great challenges for us, that that we will be incentivized to keep moving, to keep going, to keep persevering, knowing that Thou wilt not forget our labor of love. Draw us, O Father, ever closer to Thee. Let the trying of our faith work patience, work, work maturity, and draw us close to Thy side, O Father. Forgive our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.